Morning, you step out of bed and into the whitewater raft that is your day. Paddle your guts out and try to miss that big rock. Ouch, never mind. But the river never stops. So wipe off the blood, paddle over to that flat spot on the bank, and we'll get some perspective together. The story's not about you, but if you can learn to see the whole river from Eden to the New Jerusalem, if you can learn to cry at the cross and sing at the empty tomb and trust God through the time in between, you won't just survive. You'll be ready to leave this world a little brighter than you found it. And then we'll get you back on the water. Welcome to the Headwaters Podcast. Uh, I'm just going to start out by telling you a little bit about what the purpose of this is. You've probably poked around on Headwaters website, seen our curriculum. We offer kind of two different lines of curriculum. We have the He Shall Crush His Head Bible curriculum, and then we have the Victorious Bible curriculum, which is for homeschoolers and for churches as well. So this is something, this is a set of curriculum that you can use with your family, with your small group, and then the He Shall Crush His Head curriculum is meant for Christian schools, middle schools, and we're just going to be talking through the curriculum. We're going to go through um, the whole Bible over the next few years, unless we, unless we, we, we get years. weak and, huh? This is what this is what I signed up for. This is what few you said. Years. A few oh. years. You didn't even know. <laughs> <laughs> that decision was made right, right now. Right now. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's um, great. That's great. It probably will. Anyway. Um, so if you don't have a copy of Victorious, just hop on the Headwaters website, order one. You're not going to, we're not going to be teaching you through this. You're going to read the curriculum on your own, study it, learn it, do the exercises in it. And then we're just going to talk about it. Anyway, my name is Joe Anderson and I am one of the authors of the curriculum. And uh, I'm here with Ryan Bramlett, good friend of mine, and he's going to be reading along and studying this. And uh, Ryan, why don't you introduce yourself and just tell us a little bit about yourself? Yes. Thank you, Joe. So my name is Ryan. And uh, I have pretty limited experience, I think it's fair to say, with the Bible, uh, particularly with um, some of the passages we're going to be going through a little bit later on. So uh, we sort of euphemistically refer to me as fresh eyes um, because I am approaching the text and a lot of the ideas in it with, uh, with fresh eyes. I, I'm very excited to be doing this, and I think it's going to be a, a, great, a great experience, eye-opening experience. It won't be fresh eyes anymore. To give our listeners an idea of how this podcast is going to work, we're going to be working through some passages from the Bible, starting at the very, very beginning, Genesis uh, 1-1, which was also coincidentally the beginning of the earth. So that, uh, that works synergistically. Uh, so we're going to be going through the, the Bible and then each podcast, we're going to have a special guest who's going to join us and give his or her unique uh, perspective on what we're talking about and just get a third voice uh, into the mix. Yeah. So for today, we're going to be in lesson 1.1 if you're following along in the curriculum. Um, and we'll move sequentially through the lessons, obviously going through sequentially through the Bible in kind of a chronological format. So if you haven't ever heard the whole Bible put together before, um, it's pretty cool to, to finally see the whole thing stitched together. I went through seminary before I finally got the big picture into my head. And I hope that we can help pass that along to you in a way that's useful for you and your family and friends um, to really know the Bible in an in-depth kind of chronological 
big meta theme, big picture kind of approach. So I want to welcome Tim Nichols. Tim Nichols is my co-author on the curriculum, and he's going to be our first guest on this first episode. We'll have other people in as well, but Tim, go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself. Thank you guys for inviting me. I'm uh, remarkably well-adjusted for a pastor's kid. I'm a community pastor in Englewood and also work as a massage therapist and write curriculum. So I've been reflecting on the biblical story for many years, but like like you, Joe, I was into seminary and actually through seminary before I really came to grips with it as a single story from end to end. And it made so many of the things that I knew snap together and look different once I had the once I had the whole framework together. It's that you know, that 5% of what you know that change that turns the other 95% on its head. I mean, it's fundamental to the Headwaters curriculum is taking the, the Bible as a, as a complete story. Could you just say a little more about why that became so central to your ideas behind writing the curriculum? As, as we were doing practical ministry. I was, Joe was here in Inglewood working with youth and I was in California working with a church plant. Um, and we were encountering people who didn't, didn't understand the Bible, hadn't grown up with it. Maybe knew some of the, like knew the David and Goliath story and a few you know, the iconic biblical stories like that, but didn't really understand the Bible and didn't have in the world they lived in, didn't have any reason to live in a godly Christ-like way. It looked stupid to live like a Christian. In my context with the church plant, I had couples that were fighting it out in their marriages um, who could not see their way to conducting themselves in the way that the Bible teaches us to conduct ourselves in marriage because, you know, he's going to just take run roughshod over me. She's going to take total advantage of me. She, you know, that kind of thing. And what I found was the key to helping them get around that corner was first of all, pastorally to just acknowledge, yeah, that's, that's likely what's going to happen in the short term. You suddenly begin treating your wife like Christ treats the church and you love her and you give yourself for her. She will probably treat you like the church treats Christ sometimes <laughs> badly. Um, yeah, yeah, that's, that, that's going to happen. But knowing that that was as far as they could think is that this, this, this isn't going to work. This is, I don't, I don't think I can do this in order to get them past that point. They had to be embedded in a bigger story than the story that starts with their first thought when they got up this morning. Um, and embedded in the story where yes, the church takes advantage of Christ at times, but in the end, what Christ does in the way that he treats the church transforms her into a glorious bride. And in the end, if I emulate that pattern in my marriage, God is going to meet me in that and transform her into a glorious bride, because that's the story I'm living in. I'm living in the kind of story where when we behave in that way, God intervenes. I think part of the, part of the thing that makes the Bible so valuable is, is taking uh, bits and pieces and verses and uh, Jesus's parables, of course, but also uh, the stories that we all learned as children about Daniel and the lion's den or 
what have you. Uh, the Bible really lends itself to being taken, you know, in these bits and pieces. But I think that also does a disservice to it because it's it's like taking these little pieces out of the larger story and that you're missing you're missing the larger story. So I, the way the Bible right. is used, don't you think, is is often in a piecemeal way that is totally out of context. Right. If you hear the story of of uh, Samson and Delilah, for example, uh, often you may hear a little bit about that uh, or bits about Samson's hair or whatever, but everything is so taken out of context that how would you know who are these people? Where does this, how does this connect to God? It's um, even David and Goliath. Most people know the story of David and Goliath without knowing what David did after he killed Goliath. Right. Well, and I think the way they're taught, these stories are taught in Sunday school often as kind of moralistic lessons. You know, if you um, take the, take the appropriate lesson away from, how you're supposed to act from the story of Daniel and the lion's den and David and Goliath, then you've kind of got everything that's there to get, um, which is good. You know, that's, it's good and true that we should read the Bible for practical lessons about how to live our life. But if it, if that's all we do is of all we're getting out of these biblical stories is a nice set of rules and principles to live by, then we've kind of missed the point of the whole Bible. It's, it's, that's not what it's there for. It's, we're sinners and we need us. And God promises that one day the new Jerusalem will descend out of heaven and, and the, the waters of life will flow and fill the whole earth. And all of our sin and shame and darkness will be washed away. Every tear will be wiped from our eyes and we can pull that kind of life into the present right now. We don't have to wait for it. The, the hope of the resurrection is that we can experience that resurrection life. And if you, if you, if you manage to go through Sunday school and pick up all these little stories and get little moralistic, you know, rules out of it. Well, you're, you're kind of missing the gospel, you know, the, the piece that kind of holds it all together. Um, to add a little bit to what Tim was saying in my, in my context, I was working in youth ministry and I would have kids come. And I remember one student who came to me, middle schooler and told me that his, he was being abused by his father. Um, And, you know, there's a whole bunch of, you know, stuff that that triggers in terms of legal requirements and call, you know, calling social services and all, which I did, but he, he was coming to me for counsel and I wasn't able to point him to anything because he didn't have a context for any biblical stories. He didn't know if I wanted to talk about Jacob's sons and the difficulties that they went through or, um, different abuses endured in the Bible and how the faithful people of God were able to endure those with, you know, by looking to looking to Christ. Um, he had no context for that. He wouldn't know who he didn't, he didn't know whether Abraham came before Jesus or not. He didn't have a context for that. And I had a number of these kind of situations where I'm like, I can't point these kids to anything. And so I decided just on that basis, I wasn't even thinking about what they would get out of it in terms of the big picture. Um, I just thought they need to know the Bible. So let's you know, in addition to the, you know, the kind of counseling and relationships we were building, let's just start from the beginning and take a year and go through the whole Bible. Tim ended up moving out here from California and we worked on that project together and that formed kind of the groundwork for what our curriculum grew out of. But as we went along, we realized, wow, when we start to stitch this together for the kids and they see the big picture, let's give them a picture that starts with creation and ends with the redemption of all things. Um, And it was powerful. We saw some kids' lives really transformed through that. Part of the agenda behind the, you know, part of it is just, you know, these are, you know, David and Goliath is an easy story to tell. 
you know, Samson and Delilah is an easy story to tell. These are the kinds of stories that lend themselves to sitting in a rocking chair with a couple of kids around you and telling the story. But we tend to draw out the applications that keep them docile. And as they grow up, we, we need to draw out the other applications that will release them on the world. Well, one thing that I, I hope that we're going to bring to this discussion as we go through the Bible is to bring to the forefront some stories that are perhaps not as well known or a little bit more obscure, mm -hmm. but are equally important, but for whatever reason have gotten um, short shrift in our culture or, or in typical Bible curriculum or what have you. We named our first daughter JL which a lot of people didn't know where that name came from when we did that. She's six years old now. Um, and one of the things that was this, I, we, we had her when we were teaching through the Bible the first time with the, the youth. And I had learned that story. Um, I, I'd heard it before, but it was new to me at that time when I was trying to go through the Bible and hit all the big stories. I had kind of missed that one before as being a significant story. Um, so we named her JL and I had one friend who was familiar with the story who came to me and said, why did you name your daughter after a murderer? <laughs> <laughs> and it, you know, it, it occurred to me that this is how it looked like from our, from our perspective, this is in our culture. This is kind of how, this is how the story looks. She, a man came into her tent and she deceived him, got him, put him to sleep and then drove a tent peg through his head. That's, it's got all of the the marks of, of a well-crafted murder, you know, deception and, you know, the, the weapon and all of that, all the stuff that goes along with it. But in the, in the biblical story, the prophetess Deborah sings a song about jail and she's the hero. Uh, and then the, that's the way it's kind of, she's a, she's a prototype, a prefiguring of Mary and the same kind of language used of JL is later used of Mary in the new Testament. One of the things that I learned out of creating the curriculum and right, going through the whole Bible and stitching the story together to use that term again, is that we aren't really very good at identifying good guys and bad guys. And, um, and knowing where our loyalties are supposed to lie in our culture and how we're supposed to, how we're supposed to treat our friends, how we're supposed to treat our enemies, how we're supposed to treat our neighbors. We, we don't know how to categorize these people a lot of times and we're kind of operating kind of at the gut level without having any good root rooting and grounding in scripture as to how we're supposed to behave towards different people. Uh, and I got a, a lot out of, out of just putting all of that together and learning uh, our responsibilities. And I think like we, we talk a lot about the things that we're moving into now stance of blessing. We'll talk more about that as we go through the curriculum and, and how to love our enemies. Well, and a lot of that I would root back in figuring the story out in such a way that we can, we can identify where our loyalties lie and what our responsibilities are to different people in our lives based on just how the whole story is put together. We did this. We wrote the curriculum. We got in and we studied the Bible as a big story, not to, to fill our heads with knowledge and help others do the same. Like this, this stuff has been life changing for me personally, as we've put it together and learned it. And, uh, and, and, and we didn't just sit down with our Bibles and figure, <laughs> figure it out on our own. We were drawing on a lot of, a lot of people who've been working on this for a long time. Um, but we, we put this together in such a way that it it's meant to change lives. And if, you know, we, we want you to come to this podcast, come to our curriculum with that kind of end in mind is that it's, this is going to transform you if you let it, if you let it get inside of you. 
when you went to uh, to first write your first chapter that focuses on Genesis one, well, your first couple of chapters are still, you're still in Genesis one, but when you first went to write these chapters and, and go back to the very beginning, the first page one, book one, verse one of the Bible, did you feel any, any extra pressure because of the controversy that the first page of the Bible has generated or the, the, the different perspectives that people bring to the, the creation story did you feel any extra pressure? Like we've got to get this right. I mean, we might be able to fudge our way through jail and the tent peg, but this page one, <laughs> verse one, book one, we have to get this, this right. Or how did you approach that? The aim was for the whole curriculum and starting from the very beginning is we want to tell the story the way the Bible tells it. We want to use the language the Bible use uses. We want, we want to just, we want to be free to imitate biblical language thought patterns. And so we don't have to answer a lot, all the questions. We didn't feel like we had to answer all the questions that go into Genesis one over, you know, did this take a thousand years or did this happen in a day or was it millions of years? Was, was there a gap somewhere in there? You know, if you read Genesis chapter one, it just sounds like something that happened in about six full days. And so we thought, why not just tell it that way? Um, <laughs> yeah, the, the operating theory was that it can't possibly be wrong to tell the story the way God told it. Um, and, you know, leaving aside the question of some of the questions of, of whether there's another way to understand that, there's, there's a whole lot of inkmen spilled on that. And a whole lot of people that are a whole lot smarter and holier than I am have spent a lot of time on that and, and God bless them for it. It's an important question. I want to just tell the story and this is the way God told the story. So this is the way I'm going to tell it. So we didn't, we, we didn't want to spend a lot of time defending our view, which is that we share that it was six literal days about 6,000 years ago. We don't want to argue for that because what we've seen so much and what we grew up with was people spending so much time on that argument that they never got past it to the real meat of Genesis chapter one, which is the, all the, all of the pictures and imagery and life lessons that come along with, with the, the way that story is told all the typology and all that stuff that a lot of the people who don't believe in, young earth creationism say, see that, that, that young earth stuff doesn't matter. The real point of it is the, the image of the water flowing from the garden. And the, you know, that the, this is, this is an early tabernacle. The garden of Eden was a tabernacle and it, it's the grounding for the, the, for Leviticus. And, that, and we, we want to get into all that stuff. So we don't want to spend too much time arguing for whether our view is right. We want to tell the story the way it's told and then get into the implications of what the story actually says. Do you think that if that um, God chose this to tell the story in a way that would appeal to a people that were very young in their beliefs and were just starting, starting to get a grip on on who God was and what his character was. And that could have affected the way that the story was, was told. So in, in, in effect that creation could have been, I'm putting air quotes here, more complicated, but that it was uh, told this way just because of the audience of people at that time uh, couldn't get their brains around the, the finer details of how it may have actually happened. How do you feel about that whole line of, of argument? 
to me, it's always struck me as like, it's got some obvious curb appeal, right? You know, just laying out, well, these are fairly simple pre-scientific people. God gave them what they could handle. But the more you look at it, the devil is in the details here. One of the ways you hear that fleshed out is something like, well, there's, you know, we're talking about infinity of time here and there's, there's really no such concept or no words for that in Hebrew culture. And then it's it's baloney. Um, All of the pagan origin myths rely on enormous spans of past time. Um, Those concepts were floating around in the air at the time that Moses was articulating this story. As, as you dig into the details, I think it doesn't hold up real well. Would you like to add to that, Joe? Yeah. Well, I'd approach, approach the question from a little different angle. It's obviously simplified, you know, it's not written to be a scientific treatise on how the world began as though that I think what it does, you know, what it says is true, but it wasn't, it was intended to get us to the command divide name evaluate thing and the creation and all the, uh, you know, the creation, what happened over the period of the six days and what the, I'm I'm thinking specifically of uh, creating fruit trees and grasses and what that means theologically. And in terms of worship and all of that, I think it's easy to look, look back and say, well, those were pre-scientific people, you know, why would we think they were any, any dumber than us? You know, (laughs) I think all of the same things apply that if we're going to take that approach that he, you know, he put it in terms that children could understand. Absolutely. And we're the children, you know, (laughs) it wasn't just them people back then. It's God put it in those terms so we could understand it too. We couldn't possibly grasp the, you know, the infinite glory of the, and complexity of the creation process, but he put it in terms that we can understand. And I appreciate that. And somebody with a more scientific mind could certainly be in danger of missing the point of, of the creation story. If they look at this and they say, well, uh, here was the fourth day and he's creating the stars and that includes the sun and the sun is what dictates our 24 hour day. And yet, uh, before the sun is created, you have the first day, the second day. So how can they be 24 hour periods before the sun is created? And, and you know, your brain can simply explode meditating on this, this small detail without, without seeing the larger thing at work. Right. That's the kind of thing that I think people trip over and it, and it causes them trouble and somehow it doesn't occur to them. Why could it not have been a 24 hour day that the sun was then created to match? You know, is, is there anything we're, we're having oscillating periods of light and darkness for three days before we get the sun. Is there anything compelling those to be a particular length of time? Um, there, there's, it's just really not that much of a problem. But the interest, interesting thing to me is as much as the person who's coming at it with a, a raft of scientific questions can get lost in that and never really quite get to the text and the lessons this, the story was designed to teach, the people who come from, from our side of the fence on that can have the same problem. Um, can get, when, and this was the thing we were trying to avoid. One of the filters that when we talk about the way that the story comes down from God or through Moses to us here today in 2017, one of those filters is translation. Uh, and that means that some of the words in Genesis, the first book of Genesis are, well, the way that we understand the story is going to be based on how certain words are translated. So when we're talking about the creation of the sky or the expanse, um, Genesis 1, 14, and God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night. 
the particular, uh, is it the Greek word or the Hebrew word that's, uh, which is it? Yes. We're in Hebrew here in the old Testament. To, that is translated at least in the NIV, which is what we're sort of informally using uh, in our study here, uh, is translated to expanse. Right. Uh, yeah. So you have, you have, uh, this Hebrew word is rakia and it's translated various ways that King James has it as a firmament, which sounds like something solid. And then NIV and other translations will say various things like expanse or vault or something like that, a wide open space something to that effect before I want, I want to talk a little bit about that, but I want to back up to give a little background to this into uh, Genesis one, one in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We have from the very beginning here of the Bible, this distinction between heavens and earth. There's these two things and God created both of them and the earth. We kind of know what that means. It's the solid ball that we live on that was in the first day unformed. And then God later formed it and then separated some things on it and made it into this beautiful planet that we gratefully now live on. The heavens is a little more complicated in Genesis chapter one, because we, we, we know that heaven in in the Bible is in one sense, the dwelling place of God. And then it's also the place where the sun, the moon and the stars are. And it's this thing that then, and God called the heaven, um, God called this thing that separated the waters from the waters on uh, day two there. He called it sky, this rakia, this firmament. And it's separating is, is it, is, is the heavens here? Is it talking about just the, the dwelling place of God? Is it talking about just the physical, you know, space out there where the planets and the sun and the moon and the stars all kind of live? Or is it some combination of the two? And I think that that combination of the two is what allows us to kind of make sense of this word rakia that's translated various ways. So a rakia is a sheet of metal that's been pounded flat. Uh, there's, there's a kind of a solidness concept that goes along with the word and also kind of a spreading out of a surface that goes along with the meaning of the word rakia. So the big question here is, if the sun, moon, and stars are kind of put up into this rakia, that's called the sky. Um, what what is this thing? Is it is 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 there a solid surface up there? Well, now we're smart enough to kind of know that. Well, there's no you can't like go up there and knock on something. There's no hard thing up there separating the waters above from the waters below. There's no sheet of glass in Ezekiel. It talks about this the heavens being above this crystal kind of surface, and above there's the sea, the heavenly sea, and these cherubim go up and fly along underneath it with their foreheads and their wheel wheels spinning, and above there's God. God's throne. It's almost like you could break through that sky and, and get to the water above and it would kind of start trickling down on us or something like that. Well, we well, also know of course that there, there is no ocean of water. I mean, you could there's say- no ocean of water up there. And yet when you look up, you see what look, appears to be a solid blue surface. So whatever Genesis one, this Rikia Genesis one is talking about here fits with what we see when we look up. Well, the NIV translate it, translates it as vaults or expanse, some big open space. And they believe, you know, they would say that the translators are thinking, well, we know that it's not a solid surface. So it must mean that it's a big open area where all the, all the sun, moon and stars all are kind of up there. 
I don't think that's quite what's going on here. I think it really is intended to communicate the idea that there's a, there's a surface up there that in some sense is separated, separating God's dwelling place. And also that the sun, moon and stars, the physical heavens, it's separating us from that. That's outside of our, our realm of existence. It's beyond the sky. I don't know exactly what this Rakia is meant to, to be, but I don't think expanse is a good it doesn't capture what the Hebrew word actually means. It's a bad translation. I think it's to think of it as a solid surface is much more accurate to the meaning of the Hebrew word. You have anything to add to that, Tim? God knows what it's made of. And yet he used this word and he is teaching us to think about it as a surface above which there is water. Um, what might that mean? Well, on the last day, the new Jerusalem descends from that realm above the sky is rolled back like a scroll. The new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven the, and water pours out from under the throne of the lamb and becomes a river that gets deeper as it goes and waters the whole world. This is the picture that we're being handed. And then John says, by the way, P.S., you, you look at the new Jerusalem and, and this is the church. This is the bride of Christ. Um, God dispenses the life that waters the world through his body, the church. You, you look and it's a city that's coming down out of heaven and you blink and look again and it's all of us. Um, and there are some really important lessons in terms of how we live and how we function in our community now that you get to by taking all of that literally. Right. Well, and I think in terms of the big story of the Bible, this is just beautiful because you have in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and then he puts a solid barrier between them. <laughs> you know, we have, heaven and earth don't come together. They're separated. There's this division thing. We're going to talk about command, divide, name, evaluate. Well, here, the first thing that's separated in the Bible are heavens and earth. So we start out from the beginning with this division and God, God's dwelling place is above God's dwelling places in the heavens and different people have visions and they get to go up there and see it. Um, but down here on earth, we're separated from that transcendent God. And then on that last day, the new Jerusalem is going to bust through that barrier and come down and land on earth and heaven and earth will be united and God's dwelling place will be with his people. So you have a, a, a problem that's created here in Genesis that's not resolved until the last two chapters of the Bible when the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven. But it's also solved in the middle of the story when Jesus comes down and becomes a man and gets baptized in water and dies on the cross and is raised from the dead. And heaven is now with men, the resurrection, eternal life comes into the middle of the story. And then we're called to, to, to live that resurrection life out right here. So I think you, you get the whole picture of the story. This, this is part of the spoiler alert nature of this podcast in that we've just talked about the first page and the last page of the Bible. You're going to get this a lot, people. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but that's great because it's it's treating the Bible holistically. It's, it's not necessarily something where it's a page turner, page by page. You don't know what's going to happen. Before we move any further with that, I, I think we should go back to the pattern of Genesis 1 that you were talking about and uh, or that's mentioned in the curriculum in terms of Creating, dividing, naming, and then evaluating. Yeah. Command, divide, name, evaluate. It's kind of the fourfold creative process that we lay out in the curriculum. And this uh, this is just what 
grew out of our observations, looking at the text, what are, what are the, what is God actually doing on each of these days? And this pattern seems to hold true. Now it's not the command divide name evaluate isn't 100%. There are times where he doesn't name times where he doesn't divide. Um, but the, as a general rule, this is the pattern of God's creative activity. We started running that pattern through the old Testament and noticing how often it's often it's followed in other places. In the story of Abraham, Abraham is commanded by God to leave Ur of the Chaldees. He goes to Haran with his family, and then he's divided from his family and goes down to the land of Canaan, where he ultimately receives a new name, father of many nations, uh, or as opposed to just the father of a nation, and uh, or great father. And he um, then he's evaluated with the story of offering his son, Isaac is a sacrifice. You have this command divide name evaluate, and this carries this whole pattern over into, into our lives as kind of a discipleship tool. If I, if I kind of throw my own life up against that pattern, I see places where it fits really well along, along with my own, my own growth in faith is that I feel like at times I've received a name from God has told me who I am. He's given me an identity. He's divided me from different times, different places, um, and different identities. And, uh, ultimately, God's called me, called me good. He's called me his son. He's declared me righteous. So that all those patterns kind of carry over into every, everyone's life, I believe. Yeah, certainly. Um, and then, and then that carries some ethical freight with it. God has called you righteous, but you know, your wife looks over your life and there's a distinct lack of righteousness in certain places. Um, well, this, but this is the way it always works. God calls the thing out, calls the thing into, calls things that are not as though they were. Um, He calls it and then he separates, separates us to it. He divides us out, separates us to it. And, and this is a process that takes time. You talk about the pattern of, of uh, command, divide, name and evaluate. The other pattern that you, that you notice or that was pointed out to me when I read your curriculum was God's pattern of, of creating on one day these various things. And then after he had created them, he comes back and in that same order, he fills his creation with, with what, with what is appropriate to that, to what has been created. Yeah. The form formed and filled, I think is the way we, we worded the first three days, God forms the world and then he fills it with life on uh, days four, five, and six. God builds a shape to your life and then begins to fill it with things. God calls you into a marriage mm-hmm. that's, you know, that creates a shape and then he fills it up with kids. <laughs> <laughs> no. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, uh, to, to look at these things, uh, just, just as a thought experiment is how, how broad, how broadly does this, does these, do these patterns apply the command divide name evaluate? We've played a little bit with how it applies to creation, you know, in terms of art and craft, those kind of things, even cooking. I made a breakfast sandwich this morning. I commanded myself, I need some sausage, egg and cheese on a bagel. Um, so I divided the sausage from the, um, from the refrigerator. I cut that bagel in half. I cooked it and, you know, I applied fire, which often happens in the creative process. <laughs> well, let's get to the evaluation, Joe. <laughs> what was it good? I named it breakfast sandwich. 
it's not very creative. I should have given it like, like Fred, you know, eat my named breakfast sandwich. Um, and it was, it was very good. I did enjoy it. And that applies across things. And then I think the forming and filling applies to, um, acts of, you know, creativity as well. You often create something to then fill it up. We, till up your garden so that you can fill it with plants, those kind of things. You, you, you create a structure, you put up the, the raised garden kind of walls and then you, you fill it with dirt and then you fill it with plants, you fill it with life. So those things kind of, they apply pretty broadly. One theory that I heard on the radio a few days ago that I thought was rather interesting talking about Genesis one and, and, uh, it didn't mention Reiki specifically, but it did mention the division of waters on the earth versus waters in the sky uh, speculating that the great flood that consumed the earth in Noah's time was God simply breaking the Rakia and allowing the waters of the of sky to flood the waters of earth. And so then to oppose that, you had these scientists sort of come out and say, no, no, no. You know, if there was water that was held behind this barrier in the skies, that it would create a greenhouse effect that would warm the earth to the point where no humans could possibly survive. <laughs> um, Again, this goes back to what you were saying about you can get bogged down in the in the details, but uh, it's amusing, I guess, that that people have have speculated as to a, a time in in our Earth's past when there really were waters above and below that there was a literal waters in the sky that is simply not there anymore. Yeah. And I, I mean, if I was going to speculate on this, which I'll do right now, <laughs> please do <laughs> that the Rakia created on day two, um, it says in day four that the, um, the sun, moon and stars were placed into the sky or put on the, put in the Rakia, uh, which is, I think why a lot of translations put expanse or vault or something like that, that there is because we know that they're not stuck to a surface or something like that. I like to think that it's possible the Rakia was actually a solid surface on day two. It was a physically solid surface. And day four, when the sun, moon and stars were created, that's some sort of a a big bang of sorts where the Rakia is actually, you know, exploded and expanded out into the entirety of the universe and the waters are perhaps spread out over the universe and the, the planets are then you know, the, you have kind of a, an outward growth of the universe in a big bang sort of fashion there. I think that kind of makes sense of, of the six days of creation without, without us having to translate Rakia and day two as a, a giant expanse or vault or something to that effect. That vision of creation of the universe is so uh, delightfully earth centric and it's so politically incorrect in that way. A scientist, shameless about that, shameless. by the way. If a scientist were here, he would be just absolutely livid at your idea that, right. that the rest of the universe was created after earth and that there was a big bang that occurred when the Rikia exploded. And, uh, you know, he quite wouldn't know what to do with yeah. himself right now. Yeah. And I'm, I'm uh, completely happy to call the, the theory pure speculation, but I think it makes decent sense of the context there in Genesis and, one. And the fact that it would make a modernist head explode is, I mean, from where we're coming, yeah, from where <laughs> we're coming from, that's a feature, not a bug. <laughs> We've talked about the Rakia and this, what happened on the second day. Um, and then of course, on the third day we have the water and the, the separation between dry ground and, and water. And then we have also on the third day, the creation of various kinds of vegetation. That's something that I wanted to get, get into this conversation is the vegetation. 
we tend to think of this as the creation of, you know, all, all of the plants and doesn't actually say that all plants were created here on day three. It says specifically that two kinds of plants, seed bearing plants and fruit bearing trees are the things that are in focus. Now, of course it could be that all the other kinds of vegetation were created on day three or their seeds were at least put in the ground and perhaps grew later. But certainly those two categories of plants seed bearing plants being grasses and fruit bearing trees being well fruit bearing trees. (laughs) Um, but those are interesting because they become very important in terms of worship throughout the old Testament. Grain is a sacrifice that's brought to God. And ultimately it's what produces the bread of communion that we eat. And then, um, wine being a, a sort of fruit bearing tree that's creating grapes that we can, we can have this wine and then participate in worship, both of which are by the way, glorified versions in order to make bread or to make wine. You have to do a lot of commanding, dividing, naming, evaluating to to get them from that state into the next. It's not like fruit off the tree is ready to be partaken of in worship. God calls us to exercise some dominion over the earth in order to get to the place where these liturgical plants are to be eaten and drank from anything to add to that, Tim. Well, it's interesting that God calls us into acting on the world and calls us into interacting with it. And then when it comes into, when it comes into worship, you don't ever bring, or I can't off the cuff, I can't think of anything that is brought in offering that is a raw material that you can just pick. Like you don't, Mm. you don't, you don't bring... You don't bring olives, a live sheep, and just fling them on the altar. Right. You, the the animal is is ritualistically slaughtered and quartered and so on. Um, you don't bring olives. You bring the oil. You don't bring grapes. You bring wine. You don't bring just raw grain. You bring flour. You bring bread. Well, I'm afraid that that's uh, that's going to be our time for this week. Uh, we certainly want to thank our special guest Tim Nichols. I appreciate it very much. You joining our initial uh, podcast here. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome. And um, please join us on our next episode. Well, we'll be uh, going into the creation of man and getting into Adam and Eve and the garden of Eden and all of those things that we think that we know and we don't actually know. (laughs) Uh, Any, any final words for us this week, Joe? This is where I, I come up with a great sign off line. On the spot. Well, this is just the first episode, Joe, so you don't need a. Oh, I don't. Uh, you don't need any fancy slogan okay. yet. All right. Yeah, thank you, Ryan, and thank you, Tim. It's been fun. We'll dig in deeper next time. Thank you for listening. Please join us at headwatersresources.org to download our podcast and check out our entire line of books for you and your family. Our podcast was created and produced by Joe Anderson and Ryan Bramley. Our theme music was written by Pacifica. Our narrator is Tim Nichols. In our next episode, we take one more step through the Bible. For Ryan and Joe, this is your official announcer, McKenna Dunch, saying goodbye for now, and may the peace of the Lord be with you.